This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, this is Eric Ruderman uh, coming to you from ACR Convergence 2020 uh, for Room Now. Uh, welcome, and I wanted to talk uh, today about uh, a new therapy that's actually a new approach and a new pathway in psoriatic arthritis. Um, talk a little bit about the data that's presented at this meeting, uh, and then talk about what this may do and where this may fit in our uh, paradigms for treating psoriatic arthritis. Uh, the new uh, molecule or the new uh, drug is called Ducravacitinib. Uh, it is a very specific uh, TIC2 inhibitor. Um, as you'll remember, the JAK family of kinases actually has four different molecules, JAK1, JAK2, and JAK3. And the, and the, the drugs that we've been looking at so far target uh, JAK1, 2, or 3 with varying degrees of specificity. Uh, the newer agents a little bit more specific for JAK1. The fourth member of that family, and the reasoning for the nomenclature is lost in history, uh, is TIC2, not JAK4, but TIC2. Um, it is a JAK kinase. Um, as you may know, the JAK kinases um, help with signaling for a variety of different cytokines. They bind to the cell surface receptor. Uh, they dimerize and phosphorylate uh, two different JAK molecules at the uh, intracellular portion of that receptor, often heterodimers of two different JAK molecules. Those JAKs then uh, phosphorylate and activate uh, STAT molecules, which go down to the nucleus and activate transcription and protein production ultimately. Um, so TIC2 is kind of a unique um, molecule there. Um, the three agents that we've, uh, actually four agents almost, that we've seen so far that focus on JAK1, 2, and 3, don't to a large extent um, block TIC2, uh, but to a certain extent they do. But this drug, Ducravacitinib, is a very specific uh, inhibitor of TIC2. It binds actually not to the ATP binding site on the, on the uh, uh, protein, but to a separate regulatory uh, site on that protein that's um, distant from the ATP binding site. The, the benefit of that theoretically is that it may have actually more specificity. The problem with specificity with the other JAKs is that that ATP binding site may be similar between different JAK proteins. TIC2 is theoretically distinct. And the first data that we're seeing at this meeting uh, in one of the late-breaking abstracts, uh, number three in the late-breaking abstracts, is the phase two study of ducravacitinib in psoriatic arthritis. The drug has been studied in psoriasis before, the hope for this drug, or at least one of the hopes for this drug, is that interleukin-23 signals relatively specifically through TIC2. And so if you can isolate an inhibition of TIC2, you may be able to inhibit IL-23 signaling above other cytokine signaling and have a relatively specific target. That's important in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis because as we know, IL-23 uh, antibodies that inhibit the IL-23 uh, molecule um, are very effective for treating skin disease. They're also effective for treating joint disease as we've seen with gazelcomab and some earlier studies of the other agents, uh, but particularly effective at treating skin disease. The other benefit is that 
inhibition of IL-23 seems at least on the surface to be associated with a somewhat decreased risk of infections and uh, side effects. So in theory, a JAK inhibitor that's more specific for TIC2, which therefore is more specific for the IL-23 pathway, would have benefit in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And that's the idea here. The data says that it works. It doesn't say that it works that much better. So if you look at the data in the trial that's presented here, it's an effective agent. It's effective at uh, reducing active joint disease as measured by ACR response. It's effective at, reduce, at improving function as measured by the HAC disability index. <clears throat> it improves enthesitis um, and MDA responses, minimal disease activity um, are higher than with placebo. And the skin response is quite good. The skin response isn't quite in the same ballpark that we've seen with specific IL-23 inhibitors. So one wonders whether this is truly uh, as you might sort of call it uh, an oral IL-23 inhibitor, or it just sort of inhibits a slightly different pathway. And, and what we don't know is whether IL-23 signaled through other pathways that, that may sort of get around this. Um, the safety profile though was quite good. Um, very few uh, serious adverse events, um, some minor infections, some rashes, um, I think it remains to be seen whether the safety profile here is going to be better than the other JAK inhibitors. Um, so it, it's a good drug. It seems uh, positive in phase two. The pathway seems to hold promise, and there are other tick uh, inhibitors in development. Time is going to tell where this fits into our treatment algorithm. We have so many good drugs to treat psoriatic disease these days from methotrexate, which still works, to apremolast, another small molecule, uh, to TNF inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors, IL-23 inhibitors, the IL-1223 inhibitor, ustekinumab. And, and what we're struggling with is trying to sort through all of those and figure out which is the right drug for the right patient. Um, having another agent, the TIC2 inhibitor, um, certainly helps. But what we're going to need is, as things move forward is uh, data that helps us understand who's the specific population of patients that might benefit more from this than another drug, or, or perhaps most will, we'll have to see. Uh, stay tuned, phase two data is always exciting to see. Uh, later stage data is really gonna help us frame the use of the drug and we'll see where that plays out. Uh, thanks for listening and tune into Room Now for more information on ACR Convergence 2020. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope reporting at Room Now. I hope you're enjoying the ACR 2020, our virtual Congress. I can tell you I'm learning a lot. This is an abstract and the results are kind of uh, solemn to me. So it's abstract number 1462. And what this was, was a large survey of uh, men who would have exposure as coal miners or other silica exposure. And the question was, um, do they have inflammatory arthritis? And then validating by things like they're on disease modifying drugs, uh, do they have a diagnosis of RA? So the first thing to note is that Kaplan syndrome still exists. And for the keeners, you probably already know historically that Kaplan syndrome were 
um, people working in the coal mine, obviously men back then, who developed rheumatoid nodules and often had rheumatoid arthritis. And the solemn findings here are that we are still finding rheumatoid arthritis um, and with a pretty high relative risk in people who are coal miners or other exposure to silica. Number one, why aren't we protecting our workers better? And number two, this dust exposure can affect the patients. And although they didn't look in the abstract, I'm sure it could have secondhand consequences to the family members or people that live in the towns or the cities where coal mining is a, a big deal. So I think the way that I will change my practice is I'll ask patients about exposures and a work history and obviously to try to advocate for my patients for good safety. I hope you're enjoying ACR and follow us at Room Now. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Room Now. We have the pleasure of Michelle Petrie with us, and we're going to talk about some of the things she's presenting at this meeting. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jack. Okay. So for the audience, I'm going to have them get out their pens and, and paper and write down the abstract numbers of 1261, 1262, and 1266. We're going to talk about the issue of testing for antiphospholipid syndrome and some of its predictive value. Um, uh, in predicting future thromboses. Um, and let's just start with 1261. You talked about the profile of what you do in your clinic of over 800 patients in the Hopkins lupus clinic. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, Jack, the problem is lupus is not like primary antiphospholipid syndrome. So for primary antiphospholipid syndrome, people have memorized this thing, triple positivity. You have lupus anticoagulant and anticardiolipin and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1, then you're at high risk. Well, it turns out that doesn't hold true in lupus, where the majority of the thrombotic risk is actually explained by the lupus anticoagulant. And what's really important for everyone to know is that the lupus anticoagulant fluctuates in lupus the same way anti-DNA might fluctuate, for example, or low complement. And so it is necessary to look for the lupus anticoagulant probably multiple times, because if a patient has it, even 25% of their visits, they have an increased risk of thrombosis. And you, um, in your studies, looking at how predictive lupus anticoagulant is versus um, uh, other testing, um, you you've correlated that with not just venous thromboses, but also arterial thromboses. And I, I was surprised that they were almost equal in, in numbers. Yes, but remember that everything is multifactorial. So for arterial thrombosis, things like hypertension and other traditional risk factors play a role. So it's not just antiphospholipid antibodies. Yeah. So the point of the first paper was that lupus anticoagulant is by itself is just as good. And the second paper said head-to-head -head lupus anticoagulant versus double positivity, triple positivity, still lupus anticoagulant still works. What in reality do you do and what do you hinge your decisions or thoughts on, not necessarily decisions, but you're always doing this as a risk profiling sort of measure? So my belief backed up by our data is that if someone has lupus anticoagulant, even just 25% of their visits, they deserve prophylactic therapy. And right now, based on the evidence, the best prophylactic therapy is a baby aspirin 
plus hydroxychloroquine. Did you want to make a case for beta-2 glycoprotein? Well, yes, but you know what's controversial is that we measure IgA. And in Europe, where they uh, first, uh, Dr. Pengo, coined the term triple positivity, he was looking at just IgG and IgM. But in our lupus patients, IgA anti-beta-2 might add risk on top of the lupus anticoagulant. So it is worth measuring that isotype and paying attention to it. So for the audience, I want to give some perspective. The um, I believe that having lupus anticoagulant um, had a, a, gave you a twofold or no, sorry, a threefold increased risk for arterial thrombosis and almost a fivefold increased risk for venous thrombosis. And then the beta two was around two or something like that. Am I close on those numbers? Yes. And so, you know, we're not talking, you know, uh, risk factors of, of 20 or 30, but we're right. talking a, quite a significant increased risk that is clinically meaningful. Well, and I found this, uh, these reports of yours very interesting, especially in light of another one that you had that looked at lupus patients and their risk of MI versus CVA, and that the risk factors for them are not the same. Yes, and I think there are a couple important messages. The first is that strokes really peak in the first couple of years. So I think we used to think that there was this bimodal pattern and all the bad cardiovascular stuff came later, well, that's not true. Strokes definitely peak early. And the other important message is that the lupus anticoagulant and low C3, those are really risk factors for stroke, much more so than they are risk factors for myocardial infarction. And that really surprised me because I think of sort of, you know, immune activation and other factors being more important in the coronary arteries. But that's the whole reason we do cohort studies is you're not supposed to guess. We're supposed to base everything on evidence. Now we have that evidence. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting observation. I think many people would probably think about that as maybe what they've seen. I mean, uh, uh, MI is, uh, uh, has, in my experience, been a later phenomenon, age-related, comorbidity-related, and, and obviously lupus activity. Can, uh, I, I always thought played some role, but I'm not surprised to see that um, it doesn't play maybe that big a role. Um, but there are other, other factors that go into MI uh, in lupus patients later on. And the other thing that I think is going to surprise people, especially everybody who listened to the plenary session on the Georgia Lupus Registry, is at Hopkins, we do not find African-Americans having a higher risk of these events than Caucasians. And our data set, the two ethnicities are superimposable but they have different risk factors. Mm -hmm. So they get to the same frequency of events, but they get there in different ways. So antiphospholipid antibodies is much more common in Caucasians than in African-Americans. And some things are just such a shock. If we look at risk factors for myocardial infarction, for example, hypertension is not significant in African-Americans. I'm thinking, you know, how is that even possible? But again, you know, uh, I learned a long time ago, uh, let the data speak. <laughs> well, um, complex, yes, but certainly manageable. We want, we want to thank you for your time, Michelle. Um, as always, you inform us so well. Thank you, Jack.
Hi there, I'm Jeff Curtis at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. As unfortunately we have become too painfully aware, 2020 has been the year of COVID and the ACR virtual convergence meeting is no exception to cover the topic. As probably all of us who attended the conference know, there were multiple, multiple sessions looking at COVID-19. But I wanted to draw your eye to something that you might have missed. It's the it's late breaker L01. It's the results from the very early experience in about the first four months or so of the pandemic from some of the Boston hospitals, Mass General, Brigham and Women's. It tried to answer the very important question that frankly is on most of our patients' minds. You know, if they who have a rheumatic disease get COVID, like what happens and how bad is it gonna be? And we've known from other abstracts presented at the meeting, including some patient communities like the Arthritis Power Registry and the Creaky Joints community that I work with routinely, you know, people are really fearful. There's a huge amount of anxiety. There's multiple abstracts on this topic from a variety of patient registries. So of course, how afraid patients with rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases need to be is a source of great concern. From several of the patient surveys that have been reported at this meeting, about at least 15% and in some surveys higher uh, of patients are stopping their therapies, mostly without their doctor's recommendation, and in many cases, even without their doctor's knowledge. So is this really warranted? So Late Breaker 01, reporting the experience of these Boston hospitals, sought to try to inform that question. So it's 143 patients, it's not a huge sample size, and these were all individuals that were confirmed to be COVID positive. They age sex matched them to individuals who did not have a rheumatic disease, and then asked the question, you know, what are the downstream outcomes? What's the likelihood that somebody gets hospitalized, ends up in the ICU, needs mechanical ventilation, or who dies? You know, how afraid do the rheumatology patients need to be? So perhaps interestingly enough, the outcomes are far more similar than maybe you and I might have guessed. Uh, roughly 40% of the people that tested positive that were in this cohort um, in both the rheumatic disease arm as well as in the comparator non-rheumatic disease arm ended up being hospitalized. So mechanical ventilation outcomes were somewhat different. It was almost 40% of those hospitalized in the rheumatology patient arm, roughly about 20% in the comparator arm. So the need for mechanical ventilation was about 1.5 fold higher. And after controlling for a number of things, um, that's about where that estimate ended up. So, you know, a higher risk for mechanical ventilation and ended up not being statistically significant, but it is a fair amount different. I'd point out though that the comorbidity profile of the patients with the rheumatic diseases was appreciably higher. Uh, you know, about a third of them had RA, roughly 20% had lupus, roughly a third were on steroids, and it's a pretty typical rheumatology population. And then the outcome, of course, that is of most concern to, to everyone is death. And about seven to eight percent of people overall died, but it wasn't different between the two arms of the rheumatology patients compared to the, the alternative comparison arm. And again, it's age sex match, so that's perfectly well controlled by design. So bottom line, what do we learn from this? Well, first, you know, this is still the early experience and this cohort size of 143 people isn't gigantic. On the other hand, most of those outcomes, hospitalization, death were pretty similar. You know, ICU admission, also not much different, 
The mechanical ventilation was somewhat different, but in fact, they looked at it in terms of calendar trends. And, you know, later on in time, perhaps with, you know, some of the existing ICU type protocols that might have got put into place, the need for mechanical ventilation actually looks like it changed and became closer to parity in the rheumatology patient cohort. So unlike perhaps what some patients and clinicians might have feared, the outcomes of actually having confirmed COVID-19 infection for rheumatology patients were really not a whole lot different compared to the general population. What's not known and what's left really unanswered is the generalizability. You know, these are people that are, are seen and treated and were initially diagnosed at a Boston healthcare system that, you know, is clearly not highly generalizable to, you know, non-urban settings or, you know, rural areas where hospitalized patient care may be quite different than in these, uh, in these Boston hospitals. The other thing, of course, that this abstract doesn't touch at all because it was very much out of scope, you know, are patients with rheumatic diseases on the treatments that we would usually prescribe, are they at higher risk to get COVID infection? And with a study design like this, you can't speak to that. But for the question that it sought to answer, um, you know, are outcomes of people who have confirmed infection worse if you have a rheumatic disease on the usual treatments, it really doesn't seem like it. So I think this is gonna be a helpful practical piece of information. We need more data, but at least at this moment in time, it really doesn't seem that much different. And I think that provides at a minimum some reassurance and comfort that you know, people don't have to live with quite as much fear and anxiety as perhaps that they've had uh, up to this point. We still need the usual precautions and common sense and social distancing, but people probably will be somewhat less afraid if we can share some of this data from the L01 late breaker. Thanks for your interest. Hi, I'm Alexa Simon-Mira, Assistant Professor at Ohio State University, reporting now for ACR 2020, and I am here with Dr. Caitlin Quinn, and I'm going to let her introduce her amazing self, and we're going to talk a little bit about large vessel vasculitis and the new imaging techniques that we're going through. So, Caitlin, if you'd thank like to introduce yourself. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm Caitlin Quinn. I'm a staff clinician at the National Institutes of Health, and I mainly work in the vasculitis translational research program there. So tell me a little bit about the new work that's been in multiple abstracts about imaging for large vessel vasculitis. So most of the work looking at FTG PET and large vessel vasculitis has been at time of diagnosis. Um, so for the past several years, we've been doing PET scans in a research setting at NIH um, to monitor disease activity over time and to really try to better understand how PET changes in response to different treatments and can PET predict who may relapse um, and can PET predict who may go on to have angiographic progression of disease over time on MRA or CTA. So this is really important because it's really hard to one, diagnose, and there's a huge delay in diagnosis, which has a lot of morbidity for patients. And then two, as rheumatologists, how do you change, you know, DMARD, steroids for patients in flare? Um, and so this could be a really profound change to the way that rheumatologists practice. Yeah, so one of the abstracts that we presented at this meeting was specifically looking at change in PET over time in response to tocilizumab treatment. The two recent randomized control trials um, looking at tocilizumab treatment and giant cell arteritis 
really focused on clinical improvement and laboratory improvement, but imaging was not systematically studied as an outcome measure. So to try to better understand how PET scans change in response to tocilizumab, um, we had patients who had a PET scan prior to tocilizumab treatment, and then at six-month intervals while on tocilizumab. And we saw that there was continued improvement um, over a two-year treatment period um, with a similar amount of, improve of improve improvement in both the first and second years of treatment. So it's really cool. So do you think that PET seems to have, a, is it better like inter-rater variability compared to like ultrasound and MRIs and all these different things? Cause it's more of a standardized color change kind of view. Not that I'm a nuclear medicine doctor by any means and not trying to minimize that. Yeah, I think it depends on the institution and what imaging modalities people are most familiar with. But the nice thing about PET is you can really, on a scale, detect incremental change over time that sometimes can be harder to do on ultrasound, where it's very operator dependent, um, and even on MRA, where it's hard to gauge the amount of change in wall thickness or edema over time. So the nice thing about PET is we can really scale and measure improvement over time, which makes it a nice option as an outcome measure um, looking at response to treatment. Well, I think that's super cool. I was like, before we kind of close up today in this short, quick little interview, is there anything else, any other uh, shout outs you want to give or anything else before we kind of close out? Because I think this could really, as, as, a, as you are, as a practicing rheumatologist, I think that this could make a big difference for patients and how we monitor this and disease more morbidity and damage if we actually had really accurate ways to, to follow these patients. So I'm really excited um, as a vasculitis doctor to be able to use these things. So yeah, I think um, my mentor is Peter Grayson at the NIH and it's been really great to get to work with him and um, all of our patients that we've learned so much from and been following. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and so amazing work, Caitlin, as you know, you're the fellow for the, right, the VCRC, right? Like in doing all this amazing I, stuff and the ACR fellow for the vasculitis guidelines. And so I'm really excited for all these things and I'll, I'll make you do some more interviews with us. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Hello, ACR Converge. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate reporting to you from West Palm Beach, Florida. Limited data has been published regarding pregnancy and spa patients. And as a new mom myself and with a strong family history of spondyloarthritis, I really wanted to discuss two abstracts on this important population. So a study out of Italy and Portugal, this is abstract 1324, prospectively reviewed adverse pregnancy outcomes looking for risk factors in this particular patient population. 82 patients and 94 pregnancies observed between 2009 to 2019 were reviewed. 41% of these particular pregnancies had an adverse pregnancy outcome. These included six preterm births, seven miscarriages, amongst other complications. The most frequent APO, as they're calling it, was small for gestational age. And this was in about 17% of these patients. Most importantly, a history of IBS, more aggressive disease phenotype, and active disease either at conception or during pregnancy increased the risk for an APO in these particular patients. Another study, this is abstract 
um, pardon me, abstract 1323 looks specifically at pregnancy and axial spondylitis patients. 884 systemic reviews of case-controlled trials, observational studies, cross-sectional studies, and case series found AXPOF in pregnancy in general. Of those, 130 were analyzed, and a total of 18 trials of 3,166 AXPOF patients met criteria for inclusion for this particular trial. These, this study actually found ultimately that AXPA patients have a higher rate of C-section, preeclampsia, intrauterine growth restriction, and a number of fetal complications as compared to a normal population. Of note, there was a high proportion of these patients with active disease during pregnancy, which the authors felt may be an important key piece to this. And of course, medication use and prescribing habits were very widely varied. So in that particular case, we still need to learn a little bit more about our prescribing habits in order to best treat these particular patients. This is clearly an unmet need area for our patients, and I obviously remain cautiously optimistic that what is best for baby is a healthy mommy with a controlled disease regardless of therapy. Thank you for spending time with me today. For this and for more updates, check us out at roomnow.com for ACR 2020. And of course, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate.